How many of you have ever had the best plan? The best plan. You thought through everything. Maybe there's some people in this room that might consider yourselves more detail oriented, but you thought through all of the details of whatever plan you had. It could have been your plan for life. It could have been your plan for love. It could have been your plan for fortune and glory or even just to get through the day. You thought through all the details. You filled all the holes that were needed to be filled to fulfill your perfect plan. You did everything necessary. You had the best plan. And then somehow, it still all came crashing down. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever had a plan so good that went so horribly? We all make plans every single day. We either make plans to get through the day, we make plans to perhaps get through education, we make plans to raise our families, we make plans and expectations of what we anticipate our life to be. And for some reason, it seems like the hardest and the plans that we take the most time to develop are the plans, the first plans, to be ruined. What do we do with that? What do we do when our plans and our expectations are not met? When things go horribly wrong and we ask the infamous question, why? Why did that happen? Like I said, it could be as simple as I tried to make it to work on time and, well, traffic or a train or whatever else, and now I'm late. It could be something as simple as that. But at the same time, it can also be something as complicated and as grievous as, why isn't that person sitting at their spot at the dinner table on Christmas? What do we do with our plans that go wrong? That's the question I want us to go through this morning. And I want us to ask that question and answer that question by turning to a passage in Scripture that I'm sure many people in this room are familiar with. I'm not going to be doing anything new when I look into this passage. Many wiser individuals have done a better job on this passage than I have. But I think that going through this, this passage and going through how in this passage a plan went horribly wrong. But it went horribly wrong for a beautiful purpose. And I want us to look at this passage and understand why plans go wrong and what do we do when our plans go wrong. So, without further ado, if you have your Bibles, I want you to take them, open them to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 18 through 25. That's going to be the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. As many of you are turning, you are recognizing, oh, it's Christmas. We obviously have to talk about this passage. It's part of the Christmas story. But allow me to, I think that this passage is one that is so, for some of us, painstakingly familiar, that there are so many details in this passage that we overlook so easily. And so please allow me to, 
allow us to look into this passage, perhaps even with fresh eyes, with a fresh mindset. Perhaps even clear your mind of what you've heard of it before and just read God's word for what it is. But in the opening of this story, of this passage, we find two young people, and these two young people are in love. We, 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 we often think that these individuals in these passages are a lot older than they actually are. Again, I, I'm, in this passage, I'm talking about a gentleman named Joseph and a lady named Mary. They are interested in each other, even more so than just being friends, and so they decided they wanted to get married to each other. How old do you think that they are? How old do you think they are? Because in our culture, you usually, most people don't get married at least until after 18. Even some people much older in life. There's no time in which you're supposed to or you're not supposed to, but that, that, that age varies. For some, for some people, it could even be 20s, 30s, even 40s, and, and so on and so forth. But in this passage, in this culture, 2,000 years ago, halfway across the world from where we are today, People were getting married in this culture around the, the ripe old age of 16. And me being a youth pastor, I have the opportunity for a really good joke here, but I'm not going to take it. But these two individuals, a man named Joseph and a, and a, and a woman named Mary, they're young, teenagers. But in their culture, that's what you did. You got married at that age. And so they decided they wanted to get married. Now, the way that you got married in this culture is a little bit different than how people get married today. I don't know of anybody that's been planning any weddings recently. But from a firsthand account, it's very stressful. And there's a lot of details that come into play. But I would almost make the suggestion that planning a wedding 2,000 years ago in ancient Israel was a lot more stressful than it is for people today. The reason being is in order to get married, the young man would have to go to his hopefully future father-in-law, and he would have to, he would go to him and, and make his intentions known that he would like to marry that gentleman's daughter. For any man out there, any married man knows that's a very terrifying thing to do. But not only did he have to do that, but he had to provide something called a dowry payment. And this dowry payment was two different parts. First part is that it was the young man's, what the young man thought the worth of the young lady was that he wanted to marry. So however valuable she was in his eyes, he needed to pay that, whether through money, whether through years of service, whether through livestock or whatever, or through, through common economic means of the time. So that was one part of what the dowry payment was. But another part of the dowry payment was that he would pay a certain amount of money that the father would lose out on because his daughter is now married and can't contribute to the family business. So he's got to put out a lot of money for this thing. So Joseph, the young man, goes up to his father-in-law. He engages in conversation. And his father-in-law accepts his gift, whatever it was, and then they were what was called betrothed to each other. We see that word in the passage. He was, that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. 
And the betrothal period for us today is a lot like a mix of an engagement period and a courtship period where you knew you were going to be married to this individual, but you had to wait a year. It was always a year in between the beginning and the end of the betrothal before the wedding. And in that year, the wedding would be planned, and the young man would build a separate addition to his house for him and his future bride to live in. And so imagine Joseph here in this passage, a young man, skilled in the trade of carpentry, puts out an incredible amount of money for the infinite worth of his future wife, is in this one-year betrothal period, is building, is building a part of his house for him and his wife, and you know that he's going to put time and effort into that to make it just perfect. Oh, and by the way, at the same time, he was planning the wedding. I don't know any married ladies in here. You all obviously knew the days of your wedding. But in that time, lady, the ladies did not know when their wedding actually was going to happen. And more of the planning happened on the guy's end than on the lady's end. My, how times change. And so here's Joseph. He's skilled in carpentry. He wants to get married. He's spending this whole year not able to be married. He's building this addition to his house. He paid an incredible amount of money. He's organizing wedding details because you know he can't do everything. He's planning out the wedding. He wants to get married. He wants to start a family. He has a lot going on, and he has a really good plan here. He wants to get married to this gal that he loves. He wants to spend a life with her. He wants to raise a family. He wants to do what he can to support his house, his family. He wants to honor them above all else. But then we get to a change of plans. Now the birth, this is verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That's a big, big bombshell in the middle of his plan. We all hear that, and we know the end of the story, and so we go, oh, well, that's fine. There's no issue here, but do you think Joseph knew the end of the story? Joseph has his plans and his expectations for what he wants to get out of life, and then he finds out that, this, that basically his fiance is pregnant and not with his own child. That is a huge, huge bombshell in his plans and in his expectations. What should he do? What would, what would you do? What would you do? Picture yourself in Joseph's situation. All the hard work, all the dedication, all the strong love and desire to just be married, and then this happens. What would you do? We get the answer to what Joseph did in verse, or decided he wanted to do in verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. I want to pause there and make 
notice that there is a lot of marital vocabulary here. Wife, husband, divorce. A lot of vocabulary that makes it sound like they are actually married. I want to make it clear they are not married yet. They are in, still in this one-year betrothal period. But in their culture, they would have been basically viewed as married in every way except for actually living together, you know, and, and being intimate with each other, actually what marriage is. They were not married yet, but their culture viewed them as basically being married. That's why there's so much marital language in here, but they are not married yet. And so Joseph is sitting here. He's not married. He, he knows he wants to get married, and then he finds out his fiance is pregnant and not with his child, and he says, I, I, I can't. I can't do this. I just can't do this. I had a plan. I had desires of what I wanted to get out of life, and this, this, isn't, this isn't it. I think we're very, we can be very quick to, to judge Joseph in this situation. Well, why wouldn't he stay with her? Well, why wouldn't he still be a part of this? Well, on one hand, I think it's fair to assume that Joseph, at this point, didn't know where the baby came from. And I think it's fair to assume, if somebody says that they're a virgin and they just had a baby, that one of those things isn't true. And so I think, in some ways, it's fair to assume that Joseph is is left out of the picture here of what is actually happening behind the scenes. He wasn't there in Luke chapter 1 when the other account of the birth of Jesus was where, where the angel talked with Mary and said, you are going to bear a son. And this son shall be called Emmanuel. This shall be a, a son named Jesus who shall save his people from their sins. Mary knew that. She, she changed her plans already. She said, I'm good. Joseph hasn't had that conversation yet. And so he resolves to divorce her quietly. But, he aside, but it, it, the text makes clear to mention that he is a just man. There was a number of ways that you could separate from, a, from somebody in the ancient world. And at this point, again, they are not married. And so he could have separated from her one of two ways. One of those ways would have been something called putting her to shame. Another way was a quiet divorce. And putting her to shame would have basically, what would have happened is if he would have divorced her, she would have been a complete outcast of the society. Her community, a very familial, community-based, everybody knows everybody's structure of society, and she has nobody to help her. We live in an individualist society today. It's hard for us to picture what that looks like. But it would have been she had zero support system. Her family may have even deserted her. She would have been, a, been basically viewed as less than due to her unfaithfulness to her future husband. Joseph is called a just man. He resolves to not let that happen. 
He's a just man. He knows the commandments that God had given his people through the law of Moses. And he knew specifically of Scripture's commands to take care of the disadvantaged in your society. And in this case, Mary would have been viewed as somebody who was disadvantaged or less than in their society. And he knew he couldn't just leave her out for the wolves. And so he did something called divorcing her quietly. He didn't make it a big public deal. He didn't share it with the rest of the community. He didn't even allow them to shame him, shame her. But also, by divorcing her quietly, he never gets back any of his money that he gave to her father. He doesn't get back the time and energy he spent on building in their additional piece to their house. He doesn't get back that time, that energy, that emotional weight, anything. But he sacrifices specifically to take care of Mary. Joseph is called a just man. A man who loves God and follows his commandments. He's making, in all, in, in, in all general accounts, he's making a wise and God-honoring choice. His plan has been changed and he still decides to prefer Mary above himself. But he still says, I, I, I just can't be a part of this. I need to get out. And then we get to verse 20 and a few verses afterwards. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I feel like those of us who have had plans and expectations massively interrupted, can get very jealous of that passage. Because when our plans go wrong, we don't always get a reason for why our plans go wrong. When things don't work out the way we want them to, we are not always given the answer. But in this case, with Joseph, he gets a little bit of divine help. Where literally a messenger from God called an angel comes to him in a dream and tells him, hey, look, I know it's a, it's a scary situation, but here's what's going on. Here's what you don't realize yet. He gets brought up to speed. And I feel like for all of us, if our plans go wrong, but at least we had a reason for it, we'd go, okay, I guess that makes sense. I guess that makes sense. But we aren't always given that. And Joseph here is given that. And I feel a little jealous about that. If we continue on, we realize even how big of a purpose this interruption is. Verse 22 and on says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, 
but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is big. Joseph is given a unique lens into this interruption in his plan, and God basically tells him, there are so many big things happening that you don't understand. Your plan was good, but I have something better for you. And that something better is this is this promise that I gave hundreds of years ago and that your entire culture, all of the people that you know and love have been waiting for this. God's people have been waiting for this promise to be fulfilled for hundreds of years. In that perspective, I can imagine Joseph saying, okay, you know, that's fair. Okay, we can go with this. We can work with this. Yeah, it's still different. Yeah, it's still scary. But he sees the reason. But what I think this passage is trying to communicate to us is that we can plan things all we want. We can plan things all that we want. And there is nothing unwise in preparing yourself for the future. There's nothing unwise in in setting yourself up with at least a general plan and a general idea of what you want to get out of life. But know that at any point in time, that plan is nothing compared to the plan of the creator of the universe, God. Our plans... They can be pretty good. But are our plans bringing the Savior into the world? Do you think Joseph would have planned, I want to bring the Savior into the world? Mary would have planned, I want to bring the Savior into the world. They're not thinking of that when they're four years old or they're older and they're planning out their life. I don't know many four-year-olds that plan out their lives. But what I want to get out of this is that when our plans go wrong, there is always a purpose for that. There is always a purpose for when your expectations are not met. There's always a purpose where things happen that make you frustrated, that make you grieve, that might even make you lament and weep and be, and be angry at God and say, God, why did you let this happen? What was the purpose of this? Everything was fine. There's always a purpose for when our plans go wrong. If you forget everything else, remember that today. There's always a purpose for when plans go wrong. Allow me to make a few application points. First, I want us to jump back to verse 19, and I want us to specifically talk about divorce. And when I say that, I know that there's many people in this room, and there's many people listening online, that we all hear that word, and our minds all go to something. Some of us go to Frustration, how could, you, how could someone think of something like that? Some of us go to heartbreak due to a personal experience. 
Some of us go to, well, this was a difficult situation. And, and, and again, allow me to fairly claim the text does not say that they are married. And so this in by no means is divorce in what we think of today, where two married individuals separate. This is a very different circumstance. Their culture would have viewed them as married, but in the eyes of God, they are not yet married. They aren't. And so, again, it has a lot of marital language, but they are not married yet, specifically in the eyes of God. And also, I will in no means claim to be an expert on marriage. Yesterday was Kezi and I's sixth month. Exactly. Thanks for laughing, whoever did that. <laughs> I am by no means an expert, and I will never claim to be one. And I think anybody who claims to be a marriage expert is fooled in some sort of way. But what I will say is that if there's one thing I've already learned about marriage is that it's very hard, but it's very good. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done, but also one of the best things I've ever done. And marriage, we all give marriage a hard time, don't we? I can't tell you how many times people teased me when I was engaged about getting married. Much less times people actually said, that's a good move. That's a good thing. We mean something by the jokes we make, and we mean something by the words we communicate. And I think we all give marriage a hard time. But marriage is a good and godly and a God-created thing. And if there is anybody in this room that is struggling in their marriage or doesn't have it all figured out, then I'm beginning to understand what that looks like. But also at the same time, I don't. And if you are struggling in your marriage, can I say I'm sorry for the difficulties you're going through, for what these last couple years have done for you and your relationship with your spouse? And can I also say Don't fight that battle alone. Whether yourself individually or you as a married couple. Don't fight that battle alone. God has put you in a place where there are people all around you. Right now, physically, all around you. Who aren't perfect at marriage either. Who are also struggling in different parts of their marriage who all want to have a good marriage. I don't know anyone that gets married to have a bad marriage. But who all need help just like you do. Brenda, could you put up the visionary marriage slide again? Forgive me to, for doing this, but Pastor John is beginning a new elective on visionary marriage. And this is something that he did completely apart from me, and I already wanted to talk about this. And then I heard this, and I went, oh, well, I see why God did that then. But I really encourage you to do 
to be a part of this elective. Again, it's not a place of shame or a place of of judgment or a place where people are going to push you down, but it's a place where individuals are coming together that are all imperfect and are all not good at being married and all want to get better at being married. Whether you're severely struggling or you're just messing up with communication, either way, please, please be a part of this class. This is a place where a lot of people are going to come together, where people need to work on their marriage. Please be a part of that. Don't do it alone. God's put people in your life for a reason. Use them. Thank you. The other thing that I have to say, and this is where I'll begin to close, is that we are very prideful when it comes to our plans. By making our plans and assuming that we know what be- what's best, we, we assume pride into our own plans. I got it figured out. I'm good. I have the best case scenario here. And I think that we create so many plans because in reality, we are afraid of the fact that we can't plan anything. That we hold so closely to what we want to get and what we think we want to get that when that doesn't go right, many times, and maybe even for some of us more detail-oriented people, we crumble when things don't work out. We crumble when we come to the realization that we were never in control in the first place. And I think that in some ways God does this on purpose. Because God wants you to rely on him for his plan in your life. God wants you, yes, you can be wise and come up with different plans, but if you hold so tightly to your plan that when God decides to change it, then you're going to crumble in some way or another. But if we keep all of our plans in an open palm and know that any of them can change at any point in time, This allows us to change our minds whenever a plan doesn't work to ask the question, okay, what's going on here, God? What are you doing? I mean, Joseph and Mary asked the question, and for them the answer was, well, you're bringing the Savior into the world to save the people from your sins. It's a pretty good reason. I can't promise you'll have that reason. But what I can promise is this. Your plans changing is not pointless. Your plans changing is so intricately purposeful that you cannot understand. That we cannot understand. Maybe one day we will understand all of it. Maybe one day we won't. Is God any less God? Is God any less loving and caring towards you? There was a female missionary from the 1800s. Her name was Adele Marion Field. Born in the early 1800s, grew up in the United States, met a nice young man who wanted to be a missionary in Thailand. There were very few missionaries in in Asia at the time. 
And she decided to leave her family, her church, her friends, her support system to go to Thailand, marry this guy, and be missionaries and share the gospel with people who don't know it. Her fiancé leaves a few months before her to get settled. She then leaves after an eight-month sea voyage journey. She arrives in Bangkok, Thailand. And finds out that her husband died 10 days before she got there. Plan changed. She decides to stay and be a single female missionary. Never married the rest of her life. And though she didn't see much conversion in her own personal accounts, Because of her hard work and dedication to God's plan above her own, she was able to help maintain a missions organization in Southeast Asia as a single woman, a time when single women were not viewed as qualified for missionaries. And she was able to serve God, and at the end of her life, she could have said anything, but the thing she said was this, and I quote, I don't believe our Lord sends his servants on useless errands. You are not on a useless errand. Your plans have changed, yes. Life isn't what you thought it would be, yes. But you are not on a useless errand. God has a plan for you. And I encourage you to look to his word and look to him in prayer. And have a mind with palms open and say, God, whatever your plan is, help me to follow it. It worked for Joseph and Mary. And because it worked for them, many of us in this room can call ourselves Christians. There's always a reason.